Out of the box. Meet people through their music. With Heidi Pet on FBI 94.5. How you going? It's FBI 94.5. Stuart Buchanan with you for today's extra special edition of Out of the Box. I'm joined today by Mr. Grant Morrison, who's without doubt one of the world's most influential comic book writers. He's created best-selling series such as All-Star Superman, Batman Arkham Asylum, New X-Men, Invisibles, with a career stretching back over 35 years. He's explored and probably exploded uh, quite a few universes, not only through comics, but also music, theatre, non-fiction, video games and much, much more. He's here at the Opera House this Saturday as part of this year's Graphic Festival, along with my chemical romance frontman and fellow comics author Gerard Way. Grant, thanks very much for coming in today. You're welcome. Thanks. Now we're going to kick off uh, with this first track, which comes from the Beatles, She Loves You. Tell us a little bit about why uh, you've chosen this one for us today. Well, it kind of had to be. I mean, it's pretty basic, but it's the very first song I ever remember hearing when I was a kid. And uh, it really meant a lot to me when my dad was, was young. He was a big anti-nuclear activist and so was my mother. So we'd go in these marches and I'd sit in the shoulders singing She Loves You. So it takes me back to those kind of times. And also what I think is great about this song is that it, it's directed at the listener mm. and it's telling you that someone loves you. You know, So it's a really nice song. It's not about, you know, I love her or she loves me. It's about she loves you. Mm. And when you hear that as a kid, I think it's a very benign thing to be told. And to, for the first song that you hear to stick in your mind is that mm. she loves you. I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> Let's take a listen. We'll chat again in a sec. She loves you, yeah. That's the Beatles, and she loves you. I'm here on FBI with Grant Morrison on Out of the Box. Now, Grant, uh, you mentioned there just before that, I mean, your your parents were sort of anti-war activists and, uh, you know, that you're sort of, as you say, carried carried aloft on their shoulders uh, yeah. through various marches and so on. Um, how does sort of, uh, how does superheroes fit into that world? Because I imagine, you know, when you're living in that sort of, uh, I guess, what's the old phrase, the sort of the shadow of the bomb or, mm -hmm. or, or whatever, because where you grew up around Glasgow, Grace and the Clyde, there was a lot of kind of nuclear submarine bases yeah. and so on and so forth. So living in that area, there was definitely that shadow of the sort of atomic era. How do sort of superheroes at that stage in your life sort of fit into your thinking? Well, again, a, <clears throat> a bit like the Beatles in the sense that, that they were a way out. You know, there was, a, there was a kind of positivity about the superheroes. And as you say, we had uh, 
we had the bases at the Holy Lock, American submarine base at the Holy Lock and Faz Lane. And even today, we still have RNDS Coolport, which is uh, the the site of the, the, the basically the British nuclear deterrent. Right. So there's still 50 times the firepower to destroy the planet, right, four miles across the loch from where <laughs> I live. So there's a, there's a never-present threat. Yeah. But as a kid, obviously, it's, it's terrifying because if you, even your parents are scared of this thing. So when I discovered Superman comics and suddenly realised that here when Superman is a guy who can walk through an atom bomb explosion with a grin mm. and then you see something like the Hulk whose his story is only beginning when the bomb goes off in his face, it, at least imaginatively it gave me a way out of that fear, you know, because mm. suddenly there was these characters who could in my head counteract the terror of, of that, that, that horrible, as you say, the shadow of the bomb. Mm. So that's what they were for me. But the great irony is, of course, that the same sailors from America that were bringing the bombs into my country were also bringing those comic books. Right. So they brought the disease and the cure. So I, I, you know, I have well, to thank them for both. At least they, they brought us both. And the very first comic store in, in Britain, in fact, was the Yankee bookstore in Paisley, just outside oh, Glasgow. So there, there was a, definitely a concentration there. And I always I thought it was the same way that in Liverpool, the the sailors were bringing in American records, you know, and mm. so we were getting American comics in. There was this big exchange of culture, which I think made Scotland, particularly the west of Scotland, feel a little bit like you know the fifty second state, mm. and uh, and. Uh, the attraction to America and the repulsion to America was a very strange mix mm. growing up. Mm. Because obviously, I mean, um, at that particular time, those sort of American comics were, I guess, quite jingoistic and extremely patriotic and so on, you know, in, in the kind of, uh, in the 60s period, am I right? So um, perhaps only got a little bit more sort of political as, 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 as the time went on. So that sort of contrast might have been a little more stark then than, say, perhaps it is now with comics. Well, I think the, the Marvel comics maybe were a, a bit more jingoistic. I think the, the reason I like the DC stuff is because they were so fantastic. Mm. And they seem to take place in worlds which bore very little relation to my own, which suited me fine, you know. So I, I loved the, the kind of Flash comics where the Flash was constantly turning into a puppet or a paving stone or the entire world would turn green around him. So they were very psychedelic comics written by kind of psychedelic <laughs> writers. So I think that was the appeal for me right. more than the, any sense of the political. They were a complete antidote to politics at the time. And I lived in a household that was, was drowned in politics. Mm. And that was a sort of sense of, uh, I guess, escapism as well. Did you at that point think this is what I want to do? I mean, was that was was there, were those ideas forming? Were you making your own comics as a kid? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the first thing when I was five years old and I, I read an Enid Blyton book and I just thought I want to be a writer. So it was quite easy. I mean, I managed to, to make good on that one. And the only <laughs> other opportunities I'd, I had at the time were I thought it's either that or a cowboy or an astronaut. <laughs> and I kind of uh, I, I didn't have the I didn't have the legs for the cowboy and I didn't have the maths to be an astronaut. So I had to eventually settle and being a writer <laughs> although we'd like to see the sort of I guess the Grant Morrison incarnation of the cowboy and the astronaut I'm sure that yeah, I think if I could combine them both and maybe be a cowboy on <laughs> Mars I think there's still a chance <laughs> alright let's take another song now we're going to listen to we'll chat about this one in a second this is uh, The Day the World Turned Dayglow by X-Ray Specs <laughs>
us the very wonderful X-Ray Specs and a track from them called The Day the World Turned Day Glow. Uh, And it's on a playlist, the Out the Box playlist from Mr. Grant Morrison, who's uh, sitting across from us now. Now, Grant, that track there from X-Ray Specs, I guess that sort of uh, is uh, coincided with uh, the late 70s and sort of the the birth of the punk movement. And I guess that's round about um, the time that uh, British comics sort of started their rebirth in the late 70s Mm -hmm. with things like 2000 AD and and Warrior and so on. Um, And that's when you started uh, started writing and, and getting into publishing when you when you first started and you were sort of working in those areas what did you did you have any idea about what your career might look like or where you wanted to go or were you just sort of excited to be to to be there and getting published well it was more as i said i'd always wanted to be a writer so i kind of imagined that i'd either write novels for children which is you know i was a big fan of alan garner and tolkien and that sort of stuff so i, I thought i'd end up doing kind of contemporary fantasy novels for children or writing for television you know, and again, a fan of Dennis Potter, so I was right. watching that stuff and thinking, yeah, I want to do that. But then comics started to really take off, and there was, seemed to be a huge generation of people in Britain. You know, there was Brendan McCarthy and Peter Milligan, there was Alan Moore and doing his thing. There was uh, a whole a whole bunch of people starting to come up who'd obviously grown up in the American comics but had slightly different sensibilities. So again, for me, it was punk at the time. You know, it was uh, I was approached by these guys from Edinburgh who were putting out a magazine called Near Myths, which was a kind of black and white sci-fi magazine, which was trying to merge the kind of underground style with the, the, the mainstream science fiction of the American books. So that was a, it was an ideal opportunity for me to do these weird kind of avant-garde sci-fi stories to get me started. And at the same time, I was working for DC Thompson in Dundee, and oh, I got right, my first yeah. jobs for them. So, And as you know, they're very very strict, old-fashioned, yeah. old-school kind of publisher. So they kind of taught me how to do it properly, and the, the opposite side was teaching me how to go crazy. So, <laughs> I, like I say, it was, that, I mean, that that song we just listened to, I remember watching Top of the Pops one night, and I had no interest in music for years because I hated the, the stuff. After glam rock, I kind of hated everything that was happening, the, the kind of the progressive scene and the kind of rock that was coming out of America. And all I did was listen to folk music every Wednesday <laughs> night. You know, it's ridiculous. I was, this is my authenticity. And suddenly I heard Polystyrene just yeah. shrieking it out. And by the end of that song, I thought, that's it, I'm a punk. And everything fell into place at that moment. Then suddenly I realised, okay, this is the work that I'm doing. This is punk. This is we're allowed to express ourselves again. Mm. You know, just working class kids like me can do anything. Mm. And so that was a, it was a big, it was like rocket fuel, mm. that whole thing. So, yeah. And, and as you say, at the same time, there was a lot of stuff happening, so it, it, I was just lucky to be around at this time or to be mm. part of that wave and to be able to catch that wave, which it only got bigger. You know, mm. a few years later, Warrior came out and introduced Alan Moore, and and then after that, we all started to get work in American comics. Mm. So it, it was a, an amazing time. It was just a sense of we can do anything, and mm. it didn't matter if you were a little bit amateurish because you could still get published mm. or you could still get a record out. And I guess, you know, from, from, from that moment where you've got that sort of, um, I guess, semi-creative freedom within the British market and, and writing, as, as you say, for, for things like 2000 AD, when you then get, I, I guess, the tap on the shoulder to say, come come to America, um, and you started there, I guess, some of your earlier work there, some amazing work like Animal Man and, and Doom Patrol, you know, very sort of surreal, and I, I guess for that, for hitherto the the american comic market i guess somewhat sort of maverick and unusual did you feel that that was in any way risky at all or you know in terms of saying well look you know i've I've got my opportunity to 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 walk into the mainstream market but i'm actually going to stay true to 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 my art and kind of do something that's that's more out there well again it was i think it was all legitimized by punk you know suddenly we're allowed to be expressive it's not the same now people are expected to fit into a mold i think and it produces some very beautiful work but it's all constructed I think along certain lines and three act structures and there are certain plots that now if you deviate from them you're making a mistake mm. but back then there was a huge there was a huge primacy put on self-expression and I think I just carried that through it didn't seem that I was doing anything unusual I thought this is what we're getting paid to do mm. is to be different and to introduce new strands and new ideas into something that was quite stale at that time so no, I mean, it was honestly, it was a golden time. It was a great time to be able to work and to mm. be allowed to do that. And because of that time, you know, I can get away with pretty much anything that I do now <laughs> because I do have this background and I've, I've, I've successful books going back mm. for 30 years or so, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, we're, we're going to take another track now. And uh, this one we're going to hear is uh, from Future Sound of London. 
and uh, Papua New Guinea. Um, now, this one, uh, I guess, was sort of uh, released round about the time of uh, about the early 90s and kind of to, to many people, I guess, this is quite a sort of emblematic track mm-hmm. of sort of early rave culture. Um, tell us a little bit about what, why, why this song's meaningful. This one for me, I guess, it was the first time I, I started to dance. You know, <laughs> I heard it in this. <laughs> Even uh, as a punk, you weren't pogoing. No, I was. I was super straight. I was a little right, kind right. of like a, a mod punk. You know, right. I was really straight edge. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't take any drugs. So I was very. You know, I was into my music, but I was like one of those two school cool for school kind of kids in the, the corner, just watching everyone else with a cynical sneer. <laughs> and although I, I played in my own band, I mean, we didn't even jump about much. We were quite, you know, quite... Static. Uh, yeah, we were yeah. quite just hardcore little guys. So suddenly, rave culture came along, and because there was a fusion with indie, you know, thanks to people like Primal Scream, it felt like it was okay to like dance music again. And so much of it was influenced by psychedelia that, mm. you know, and that appealed to me via the Beatles and via a lot of the stuff that I liked anyway, that it opened the doors for that so for me it was that it represents freedom you know it Mm. represents the idea of suddenly okay i'm going to clubs and dance and this is much more fun Mm. and Mm. also that's when i started to travel a lot as well so this has that feeling it's that expansive pacific ocean kind of Mm. feel that i think says it all about those early years of travel just after the berlin wall had come down and everyone felt that everything was going to be safe forevermore (laughs) and the 10 years before 9 11 we felt we could pretty much do anything and go anywhere and so as i say it's it, it speaks to me of a very expansive time of freedom and of breaking old boundaries and kind of breaking the chains a little bit papua new guinea from future sound london on fbi
beautiful Future Sound of London and Papua New Guinea, one of the selections from Grant Morrison, a writer who's uh, joined us in the studio today for Out of the Box on FBI. Now, uh, Grant, one of the, uh, I guess one of the underlying concepts in your work is this idea of, of chaos magic. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you explain for the uninitiated what, uh, what chaos magic is? Well, I'll try and explain it quickly. It was, uh, again, it was a magic that developed at the end of the 70s. So again, it seemed to tie into the same stream that we were all sailing. Mm. And it was a way of of basically making magic a lot more democratic. The idea was to say that we don't need to do all these rituals based on Egyptian gods or, you know, ancient demons because these really don't have much applicability to our lives. Mm. So let's work with things which do. And it took the basic methods of magic and stripped them back, like dance music, to the beat and then just said... Just to prove that there are no such things as gods, what we're going to teach you to do is summon some gods, but including things like Mickey Mouse or The Flash or Superman, and you'll find that you can use the same methods to get yourself into a state of mind where these things will appear to be real and communicating to you. Mm. So when I read all this stuff, I thought, we are, this, I want part of this, mm. you know, and I was 19 and, and kind of disempowered youth, and as part of getting into music, as part of getting into comics, I got into magic as well, because it gave me this sense of control over my own life. So it, it it was about that, and there's a lot more to it, you know, but basically it's, it's a system, it's a much more shamanic system because it teaches you to use your own surroundings and the things that are important to you as ritual objects and for ritual purposes. But really it's all about creating states of mind which allow you to then, as I say, have the sensation that you're communicating with outer intelligences. Whether you are or not mm. is open to question, and sure. chaos allows that into it, so maybe it's not, but... But it works on results. Mm. So you do stuff and stuff happens. And yes, stuff happens. So I'd, 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 I've always been a kind of devotee of this and it's served me well through my life. But it's one of these things you have to say to people, it's easy to, to scoff and understand that, but you, you've got to do it. Mm. If you scoff and don't do the experiments, then you're kind of like a guy in a dark room who won't turn on the light. And I think rather than me try and convince anybody, all I would say is get yourself some manuals and try some of this stuff out and then you'll sound as crazy as me. <laughs> <laughs> but as you say, I mean, it's results-based and that's yeah, what absolutely. counts, you know. But I guess one of the, um, I guess, interesting uh, kind of, let's say, experiments and outcomes through through that is uh, is the Invisible mm-hmm. series, you know, what I guess still remains a very, uh, I guess, a very, very personal work for you. But you refer to it, uh, I guess, in the past as this idea of a hyper-sigil, which, yeah. really, which, th- which I find really fascinating. Um, and I guess that's that's an extension of, you know, this sort of chaos magic mm-hmm. practice. Um, now, I'll read this quote because you can tell me whether or not this this, this still holds true. But you said it was a, a six-year-long sigil in the form of an occult adventure story which consumed and recreated my life during the period of its composition and execution. That's seems quite a neat way of, of summing yeah. it up. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, um, about this kind of idea, of, I guess, of, of the hyper-signal and, and, and how the Invisibles uh, fit into that? Well, the Invisibles was basically, initially it was the idea of what if every conspiracy theory was true? Let's take it that it is. Mm. And the, the book was based squarely in the real world. So it starts in 1994 and it reflects, you know, things that were happening in 1994. It, got, it went through to the year 2000, but it took in, you know, the, the solar eclipse in 1999, the death of Diana. So I was working with material that was happening, putting mm. it straight into the comic. At the same time, I'd basically created a set of characters who could represent different parts of me. So the, the main character, the kind of James Bond, the counterculture, and it was, was King Mob. And at the time, I was losing my hair a bit, so I thought, oh, I'll try and make the bald guy sexy in this. <laughs> Good on you, thanks, And then, man. yeah, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> I hope it worked. But uh, So the idea was then, what if I exchange as much as I can with the life of the character? Mm. So I'd shave my head, I started to wear the kind of clothes he would wear. And if I'd set a, a story in Australia or in, in Bali or in Java, then I would go to these places and have these experiences. You know, I'd take the magic mushroom omelettes and, and jog Jakarta and mm. put it straight into the comic. Or I'd, I'd go to the, you know, the Indian Mesa and, and do the rituals up in the Mesa. So it was very much, rather than write about magic or rather than write about these adventures from the comfort of my own home, I would go out and have the adventures. And it began to create a very strange kind of voodoo effect with Mm. things that I would write in the comic then began to happen in the real world. So when the King Mob character, who was my kind of main proxy in the story, at least visually, was tortured and finds himself with this, you know, abscess thing in his face, within months I'm lying in bed with a huge abscess in my face, you can still see the scar Mm. on my cheek. 
then when he's facing death, I'm suddenly almost dead in hospital. So I thought there's something going mm. on here. It's like the idea of, of sympathetic magic where you create a little model of the world and then by manipulating the model, you should be able to produce changes in the, in the world based on either holographic theory or old-fashioned, you know, <laughs> the sympathetic pointing bone stuff. And as I, again, as I found out that it really worked, so... But after that, I decided to give him a really good time and a sexy girlfriend. <laughs> and, and did that did that work? Yeah, out too? absolutely. <laughs> you know, and even the the actual girl in the comic manifested in my life. You know, his his partner Ragged Robin in the comic began to appear in my life as a succession of red haired women who would you know I'd have relationships with, but they wouldn't necessarily work out. So I could see the limitations of this <laughs> thing. But no, it was. Uh, it was very strange. It was an, an art installation for me. It was actually, I was so deeply enmeshed in the project and it was so enmeshed in me that we were kind of writing each other all the mm. time. Mm. And even looking back on it now, the some of the experiences I had during it, you know, the whole kind of seeming alien abduction experience in Kathmandu it, that fed into the comic and gave the comic its cosmological structure all came out of this attempt to mm. fuse myself with a, an American comic book and all become a superhero in real life. And I mean, it's the work itself. And and <clears throat> if you're listening, and uh, you know you you haven't come across Invisible before, then I highly recommend you you dive into it as uh, as as deeply as you can. I mean, that sort of process. I mean, you've 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 done other books, I guess, like Flex Mentalo, and also the Filth that are sort of uh, I guess part of that part of that sort of uh, uh, body in some respects. But how much of that has then filtered through to to more sort of recent times and so on? I mean, if you sort of, I I, I guess you know it was it was such a such an important work for you personally um is it, it does it does it still bleed through into your work or is is that now just a point in time that you've sort of um moved moved on from well i think that the the lessons that i learned from the invisibles were then went into everything else you know and and the all-star superman book for instance which was was done in the you know 2000 mid 2000s was very much had the, the same hyper sigil idea mm-hmm. but this one was different this was about the, the idea of the sun god and kind of the maturity of the character so i felt while i was writing that i became more like Buddha, you know, I became more like Superman. I was a lot more compassionate, a lot more kind, a lot more strong. So there's de- there's a definite exchange, you know, and I, my method is just to make a point of that exchange and to see mm. what I can learn from trying to embody the qualities of a Batman or a Superman or, in the case of my own work, you know, Flex Mentalo or, or The Invisibles or the, the dark side of it all, which was the filth, which is mm. to say, okay, this works in this way, but at the same time there's all this nasty stuff you have to deal with. So I turned that into poetry as well in the sense of, you know, it, it had to become a story too. And it, it, it helps you deal with things. and also just makes life more dynamic mm. if you treat it that way, you know, it's where everything becomes grist to the mill of the next mm. story and then that story feeds into your life and dictates how you, you, you then mm. spend the rest of your life life you know for the next few years after it so it's i mean i'd I'd encourage anyone who's artistic to to try it and to do something that really deeply involves themselves and involves them putting doing things they might normally do wearing clothes you might normally do you know taking substances you might normally do winding up on top of mountains you might normally go and putting it back into the work and setting up that feedback loop and having that symbiosis with the with the end result. Well, look, the the track we're going to listen to now is uh, "Sound of the Atom Splitting" uh, by Pet Shop Boys. Uh, and you mentioned that um, you know this was uh, a regular feature of some of the sort of DJ nights that you were doing, or I guess around the time of of, yeah. of the Invisibles. Um, let's take a listen to it now. This is uh, Pet Shop Boys. Now, if you're uh, if you're aware of the Pet Shop Boys' work at a general level, you may not be uh, you know you, you may not be aware of this particular track. But let's take a listen. We'll talk again in a second. Come back to that one in a second. Sorry, we just uh, had a bit of a CDQ misfire fail there, so uh, everyone can put that down to uh, to a, a musical. Musical fail on FBI. <laughs> All right, uh, this one now uh, is the Pet Shop Boys. Here we go. We're all right with that one? Sounds good. We'll be back in a second with Grant Morrison.
Pet Shop Boys and the sound of the atom splitting, one of the tracks brought in by Grant Morrison, uh, who's joining us here in the studio on Out of the Box on FBI. I'm Stu Buchanan. Now, uh, Grant, you've uh, you had big success uh, in 1990 with uh, Batman: Arkham Asylum, yeah. and you returned to that character again through Justice League of America (JLA), uh, but most probably, I guess, through that massive six-year run across many, many different Batman titles for for DC. I guess one of the kind of interesting motifs of, through that, and I guess through a lot of your work, is is this idea of kind of using the superhero as a, as a, as a as something that can be continually reinvented and telling different stories of our time and our culture through it. I mean, I guess there are very few concepts like that. Um, I mean, maybe in contemporary fiction, like sort of, I don't know, Doctor Who or Sherlock Holmes or something like that, but within the comic book universe, I mean, that is intrinsic to it, yeah, isn't it? That, yeah. that, that idea of that sort of constant reinvention of it all. Mm. I think that that's what fascinated me most about working in the, the DC universe, particularly because it's so old, you know, Marvel's, you know, it's, it's starting to gather speed itself after a few decades. But the thing I loved about DC, it goes back to 1938. So this is a, a kind of model universe that was created long before I was born and will continue long after I'm, I'm dead. And to be able to go into that, I, I kind of viewed it as almost like anthropology, like you're visiting another country. Because ultimately, generations of artists and writers had actually created another place within our own that you could go and watch people having adventures, and time works differently there, and the sky's brighter, and people have got superpowers, and they can cut from you know one year to the next in the space mm-hmm. of a panel gutter. So there was something about that that was much more appealing to me than some of the other 80s experiments of let's try and bring superheroes into the real world, mm. which again you've seen recently with, with Christopher Nolan's Batman, which is to try and imagine how could this guy be real? How would he make it work? What would the suit be made of? I found all that slightly preposterous as well. I enjoy those films mm. very much and I like the fact that they solve those problems. For me, what's interesting is the fact that it's not real, but it's real in its own terms. It's real as a paper continuum stretching back decades. So I kind of went in wanting to deal with that and, and to talk about these characters as what they actually are, mm. which is perpetual motion machines, you know, narrative machines. And I saw them as being very similar to, to myths in the sense that they were constantly recreated. You know, someone will always tell the story of the death of Superman, the origin of Batman. These things are repeated every couple of decades. So it was all about that. My, my, my work with it was, was to try and explore the texture of this actual paper world and what it meant and what the interactions we were actually having with these characters in the real world were. Because you try, I mean, particularly through that that um, latter Batman period to, I guess, create this sort of concept of a uh, the unified theory of Batman, where you try yeah. to basically pull together every potential or uh, period or, or, or incarnation of his existence and sort of put that into continuity. That's a that's a big idea. 
Um, it must have been, you know, a quite a quite a challenge, I think, in, initially to have tried to scope that out. Well, it was actually quite exciting once I'd figured it out, you know, because it gave me a way to do a version of Batman that was my own and not necessarily everyone else's. And it's, I found it quite interesting if you looked at Batman's publishing history from 1939 until now and treated it as one man's life. So he maybe starts out in those very early years, the kind of early savage night Avenger Batman. I figured maybe he's about 19 years old there. He's just come back. He's starting out his mission. He doesn't quite know what he's doing. He even carries a gun in some of those early stories. But then he meets Robin, and by the 40s, he's this kind of avuncular figure who the police are, are, are happy to work with, and he's running about with this little kid, and so on. But you see, and so I figured he meets Robin, and suddenly, okay, he's, this is this is like his child self again. And I saw it as this amazing, you know, big brother, little brother relationship that brought him to life in a certain way. So that's why the Batcave fills with trophies. Then you have the story in the 60s where Robin goes to college and Batman gets a kind of bachelor pad in town. He's living on top of Wayne Manor in a penthouse and suddenly he's dating all these really sexy girls like Talia Al Ghul. So actually when you look at it as a, a guy evolving through his 20s, it kind of makes sense. You know, yeah. he's, he's, he meets his little friend and they have his adventure. He starts to think, well, I'm, I'm getting a bit fed up with this. I, come out, I just wanted to be a soldier fighting crime. Now I seem to be fighting quiz masters and jokers who they, at the same time the villains weren't homicidal anymore as they had been in the early 30s or the late 30s stories they were suddenly just uh, pranksters and and clowns mm. and then again in the 70s they all went dark again and the, the murder and the violence come back so to track that right through and even to take it through the way in the 90s batman is back broken and then and his city fell down in an earthquake and robin died and it just got darker and darker and darker and that was a great character art for yeah. this young man who becomes batman and suddenly finds himself now 30 and he's lost a partner and the other one's gone and his city's collapsed and his mission has been just this endless series of reversals and reconstructions and the joker changed also to keep up with him constantly and that just became that was like a gift as a writer to suddenly have a Batman who had much more potential in him that when he was 24, yes he was Adam West from the Batman TV show it was that stupid because they were all inhaling bizarre Joker gas and scarecrow toxins so everyone was kind of tripping and it was pop art but then later by the 60s you know, he's on his own and he's stripped off and he's got a hairy chest and he's kissing girls yeah that made sense for the guy who'd moved out of the Batcave into mm. the penthouse so it was really, it was just so much fun once I'd figured that to explore him and to realise that he could have all these facets because by the, the 2000s he'd become really quite grim and quite mm. isolated and a paranoid character fighting this desperate one-man war against the darkness. Mm. But to allow him to at least have those moments where, yeah, once he'd been funny, he had a sense of humour, once he was a kind of goofy, once he'd fallen in love with Batwoman and start, decided to start a Bat family, as they called it in the <laughs> yes. 50s. And it, it just, as I said, it just gave him so much more range and yeah. it was so much more fun to work with him. And that's why my run, which was originally going to be 16 issues, extended across six years because I just got so caught up with, mm. with Bruce Wayne and his life and the fact that he was Bruce Wayne again. Because another thing that had happened was that people had decided Bruce Wayne was just a mask and Batman was the real deal. Mm. And again, it was just this grim Avenger. But for me, Bruce Wayne was never... Bruce Wayne is Batman. Bruce Wayne runs a, a huge organisation during the day and fights crime at night. So to bring him back and to give him a role in the stories, again, I think was quite important. And it, it just rounded Batman out and made him much more intriguing to write about. And I guess what's interesting about the, the time as well that it's sort of concluded, it's sort of then almost finished at the same time that DC basically reinvented their whole universe when they did the New 52 and they basically sort of put a year zero almost effectively mm -hmm. um, start right across it all. Um, and now when you read, I guess, the the new wave of Batman comics, I mean, how do you feel about your relationship to, to, the, to the new material? I guess you've been through and you feel like you've, you've said enough you know, you, you've taken it as far as you can take it. What do you? How do you feel about the sort of next wave that comes after? Well, as as someone who just loves Batman in pretty much every incarnation, I think it's fantastic. You know, Scott Snyder's a great writer, and he's now basically steering the ship on Batman. And as you say, he's creating a whole new origin for Batman, which is very different from any of the ones we've seen before. Although it still hits a few of the same beats. 
So, I mean, I, I kind of love that because I love to see Batman being recreated. But at the same time, having spent six years <laughs> trying to create a tapestry that incorporates every single Batman story and every writer's attempts and every artist's attempts, only to see that cut adrift <laughs> and right. drifting over the horizon, was yeah. quite, it was quite a heartbreak in a lot of ways, you know. And I think it, that contributed to this, this cynicism of the last few issues of right. Batman Incorporated. I suppose it's appropriate, though, you know, if you're going to have a project of that scale that tries to do that and encompass everything that when it finishes all you can actually do is press that big you know is to have the deus ex machina and press the reset button and start again because you can't you know you've you've you're sort of you know taken it to its logical conclusions at least in that in, I, in that I way think to a certain extent i mean it, it, there's also a way that you could have just continued but no i mean i think i think you might be right ultimately that maybe it was so all-encompassing that it had to that had to be the mm. end and something new had to start mm. because of that mm. now you made an interesting reference um in in one of your earlier interviews about uh the fact that here in australia i guess the indigenous uh, aboriginal artists that every generation would go in mm -hmm. and, and and repaint the cave stories and tell the same stories over generations and generations and i think that's got a lovely affinity to to the medium that that you're working in we're going to talk in a second about um what's happening this weekend on saturday and about the relationship to australia but while we're talking about reinvention we're going to hear the, the full track the one we nearly heard earlier uh which is tomorrow never knows now uh, this version we're going to hear is uh, alison mossert from and this is the version from sucker punch the original by the Beatles, um, there's many, many versions of this mm -hmm. song. Why, why this particular song, but this version rather? Well, again, this is kind of my all-time favourite song, I think. This is uh, this is the one they'll play at my funeral. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, All the versions. Yeah, all of them. <laughs> yeah, I'll, just, I'll, I'll make everyone sit through all of them, <laughs> even the terrible Brian Eno version. <laughs> But it's, yeah, it's just it's a great song. It was a great moment in pop music, I think, where Lennon just suddenly broke the mould and opened the floodgates for what became Psychedelia. You know, he kind of invented it here. But I particularly like this version because it's super bombastic. You know, this is a song that can take a lot of reinvention. Mm. And this one just goes full tilt, you know, it's sitars and drones and it's got everything and it builds and it rises and it's, it falls. So I just think it's a very, it's a very, pompous and, and grand version of the song and I really love it for that reason because it, it, it gives you more you know it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> just when you thought there wasn't any more to give yeah. right, it's this Tomorrow Never Knows Alison Mossart on FBI
You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI. Stuart Buchanan joined in the studio by Grant Morrison. And Grant, that was a track there, the Alison Mosshart version of Tomorrow Never Knows. Now, um, we've got about five minutes uh, to finish up and I wanted to play a track from My Chemical Romance because you're appearing as part of the Graphic Festival this Saturday um, with Gerard Way, um, uh, former frontman for My Chemical Romance. Now, you were in a couple of his videos. Yeah. Um, how did your relationship with um, with Gerard start? How did you two sort of first get together and how's it led to what we're going to be seeing on Saturday well we we actually got together I, I saw the video for this song on MTV and I was really quite excited by it because at the time it came out I think it was like uh, 2006 or, or thereabouts it, it seemed to me that what they were doing was basically Sergeant Pepper is dead and he's in the afterlife you know they were wearing all the black band uniforms and the song itself is very Beatleish in a lot of ways it's quite similar even to the Tomorrow Never Knows version mm. that we just listened to and and so it appealed to me on the basic musical level, but at the same time, I was actually just blown away by the idea that what I felt he'd done was to take the the, the, the emo culture of the time, where we were hearing all these stories about the kids cutting themselves and you know the bloodletting and the kind of pain of those those teenagers, which was happening at the same time as the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, which was yet another bunch of young people mm. dying. And he'd taken the image of the soldier and the suffering emo kid and kind of fused them into one thing. So I thought artistically it was just really amazing. It was a kind of punk psychedelia that I loved. So I got in touch with him via Neil Gaiman, who's a you know, mutual friend, and we met up at a gig in Glasgow and just totally hit it off. So we became very close friends and, and collaborators. And as you see, I appeared in a couple of videos and we've you know we hang about a lot. So this one came up when he called me last year and said, look, we've got to do this thing in Sydney. And he vibed me up, and you know, so I've, I've written this piece, and then Gerard comes up and goes, Oh, I'm not going to write anything at all. I just want to come <laughs> along and sit and talk. So the actual performer's just going to be sitting talking, and we'll be talking about all the new stuff that we're kind of working on because obviously he's uh, he's got a lot of new st- projects now that he's he's you know he's, he's left the band behind, and now that I've finished Batman and Superman and the kind of monthly DC comics, I've got a lot of new stuff coming out. So we really wanted to just get up there and, and kind of buzz on all the new ideas and the new stuff we've been absorbing and the new things that we, we intend to put out because one of the new things that he's doing he has now sort of uh, moved into uh, comic book writing and he's seen mm-hmm. now, now had a couple of uh, successful volumes out you're the the sort of first part of that though where um you know you've uh, you're going to uh, do a sort of uh, prepared talk as it were this is about australian superheroes tell us a little bit about yeah. it well again i I find it interesting that, that no one really talks about Australian superheroes and there's a lot of these weird, interesting Golden Age characters and characters who've actually got you know based headquarters in the outback or in Sydney. And it seemed to me that no one had done a Watchmen on them and nobody <laughs> kind of revived them. And I know there's been a couple of a couple of revivals in the, the, the past decades, but there's been nothing big and nobody's really aware of it. So one of the first things I wondered was what had happened to them. And it occurred to me that Australia's not big on heroes, you know. Australia's quite an egalitarian culture, so maybe superheroes don't fit in so well here. And then I was thinking about the the Murdoch Press, which is also about taking down heroes and taking down Mm. people who get above their station. The tall poppy syndrome. Yeah, so really this piece that I'm writing, it's a kind of, it's a cross between a a beat poem and a shaggy dog story. (laughs) And it's about what happened to the superheroes in Australia. And basically the notion is that... uh, you can't defeat these guys with invulnerability and superpowers with using anything other than scandal. <laughs> so it's going to be about what happened to a lot of them and <laughs> explain where they wound up and why. Well, that sounds brilliant. Thanks, Look, Grant, thanks very much for coming in. Sorry we've had to... We could, we could, we could carry on talking about a whole bunch more stuff, but um, really appreciate your time today. Now, the, the event is, uh, as I say, part of the graphic season at Sydney Opera House. It's this Saturday the 5th at, uh, at 9 o'clock. Uh, that's Grant Morrison and uh, Gerard Wade. Now, we'll leave now with, with a track from My Chemical to the Black Parade. Grant, thanks very much for joining thanks us Thanks a lot. It was great.
out of the box. Meet people through their music. With Heidi Pat on FBI 94.5.